0: Open your personal copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 33 to 46 this morning. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. And As we are turning there, let me begin by asking you a question for you to think about. It's a question. If you uh, do some reading, particularly in the, uh, the area of the New Testament, that frequently comes up, and the, and the question is this: Did the rulers of Israel knowingly kill their Messiah? Did the rulers of Israel knowingly kill their Messiah, or? Was it somehow that they became overcome with circumstances and he ended up getting himself crucified? Did they knowingly do it? The answer to the question is not as simple as one might at first think. There are several places in the New Testament that indicate somewhat clearly that there was uh, an aspect of ignorance involved. For example, in Luke's gospel, Luke 23 34, where Jesus prays, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, where Peter speaking to the, to the leadership says, uh, The people, and the, uh, says, You acted in ignorance as your leaders did also. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, if the rulers of this world had known that he was the Christ, they wouldn't have done what they did. The Apostle Paul, speaking of his own actions as a Pharisee prior to his conversion, says over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. So there are a number of scriptures that indicate rather plainly that there was a, a certain ignorance involved for both the people of Israel at large and for their leadership. In their refusal of the Messiah and their crucifixion of their king. So at least for for some of the leadership of the nation, they actually thought, and this is the case of the Apostle Paul, they actually thought they were serving God by protecting Israel from a false Messiah. They believed they were serving God. In their case, the the words of the prophet Isaiah were true. Where he says in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, We esteemed him, that is Christ, we esteemed him stricken. We thought him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, we thought he was dying for his own transgression. That God had struck him down because he was an evil man. They thought he was being punished for his transgressions, not for theirs. Now, they were sinfully wrong about such things. And deserving of eternal condemnation. Accordingly. But they acted unintentionally. They acted unintentionally rather than in direct defiance of God. And, beloved, that actually makes a difference. It makes a difference. It's in keeping, actually, with what is taught in the Mosaic Law in Numbers chapter 15 and verses 22 to 31. You don't turn there. You can write it down if you like and check me afterwards. But in Numbers chapter 15 and verses 22 to 31, In the Mosaic Law, it is quite clearly said that there are sins committed willfully and there are sins committed unintentionally. And it further says that sins that are committed willfully, there is no forgiveness. But for those that are committed unintentionally, there is the possibility of sacrifice and forgiveness. It requires repentance, it requires faith, it requires coming to God to be cleansed of one's sin to be sure, and that 's exactly by the way how the nation of Israel is approached at Pentecost by Peter in chapter two of the book of Acts, where Peter says to them in In verse 38, after preaching to them that you have crucified your own Messiah, he says to them, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, you've got to remember, this is is just 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ. And he's saying, you need to repent. You need to turn from your guilt in in the death of your king. And you need to publicly identify with the crucified one, the Lord Jesus Christ, by being baptized in his name. And forgiveness is available to you. But for some... For some, particularly among the leadership of the nation, they had gone beyond the point of no return. They had gone beyond that point. They had willfully and with, with malice aforethought rejected the revelation of the Messiah and hardened their hearts to him. We see a glimpse of it back in chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel. Again, I won't turn you there, just remind you. But it's in chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, where it's spoken there about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember? Where they attributed the clear testimony of the Spirit of God to the Messiah through the miraculous work that he was doing by attributing attributing that supernatural work to the power of Satan himself. And Jesus says to those people there in Galilee, and in particular to the Pharisees there in Galilee, that you have committed the unpardonable sin. There is nothing left for you, no repentance, no forgiveness. You have knowingly and hard-heartedly set yourself against God's Messiah. You're going to kill him. And nowhere, I think, is the sobering reality of this heart of wickedness more vividly illustrated than in the passage before us this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. It is the heart of wickedness. The heart of wickedness. Now, just reviewing, we are in the Passion Week. We are in Tuesday of the Passion Week. We are in early part of Tuesday of the Passion Week. That is Tuesday morning. Sunday, Jesus has ridden into the city on the on the back of a, of a colt, the, the foal of a donkey, to the triumphant outcry of the people, right? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they have, they have come into the city. He comes into the city late in the day. He goes into the temple area. He observes what's going on, and he turns and he leaves. He comes back Monday, early Monday morning. On the way into the city, he curses the fig tree. He comes into the, to the temple area, and he cleanses the temple of its defilement, those who are making merchandise of God's temple. Possessing the the temple mount that day and the next, forbidding anyone to use it as a cut-through, establishing holiness again, and by this very act, directly challenging the authority of the Sadducees, the chief priests and elders whose domain the temple mount was. He was asserting himself as God's Messiah, God's king, in fulfillment with Malachi, that the king, the Lord, comes into his temple and will cleanse it. And that's exactly what he does. He leaves Monday night, returning to Bethany, there on the the slope of the Mount of Olives, just over the crest of the slope of the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's journey from the gates of the city of Jerusalem. There, under the hospitality and protection of his friend Lazarus, he spends the night returning again to the city early Tuesday morning. On the way into the city, his disciples, first Peter and then the disciples, observe the, the withered fig tree. Jesus pauses and gives a lesson to them From that enacted parable. And then he enters into the temple area and he is immediately confronted by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Verse 23, if you like, here in Matthew 21 through verse 27. And they are approaching him and challenging him on the question of authority. It is the question of authority. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority? They are seeking to trap him either into a blasphemous statement or perhaps into, into some kind of uh, statement that would, that would um, break his popularity with the crowds so that they might get him and arrest him and haul him away to kill him. Jesus responds to them in verse 28 and following with a parable about two sons. He traps them he turns the, the, reverses the role, turns the tables on them, Right? questions them about authority through John the Baptist, catches them in the, in the reality that they do not want to, to admit the conclusion that is obvious before them because they don't like the outcome of that conclusion, which is his authority comes from God. So he tells them the parable of these two sons, Right? one who says that they won't do the Father's will but repents and does it, and one who says they will and never does it. That, by the way, verses 28 to 32, the parable of the two sons, is the first of seven parables. Seven kingdom parables. This next section of Matthew's gospel contains seven parables. It is the most, uh, of the four gospels, it, it contains the most number of parables recorded that Jesus told that day. The reality is he tells these seven parables on one day. One day to the leadership. Seven of them. They concern the kingdom of God. The first three of these parables are directed against the leadership of the nation of Israel. So they are three judgment parables. It follows with four more parables that are told to the disciples of Jesus in order to illustrate certain aspects of the future for the nation of Israel. Seven of them. I have them for you, I believe. Just simply, you can kind of just get a scope of, of this, what we're looking for. They are the, two, uh, the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, 28-32, a judgment parable. The one before us this morning in twenty-one thirty-three to 41, the parable of the wicked vine growers. The third judgment parable in 22, verses 1 to 14 is the parable of the king's marriage feast. These are judgment parables. Follows with four others. Over to chapter 24 and verses 32 to 35, the parable of the budding fig tree. Twenty four forty five to 51, the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servant. Chapter 25, 1 to 13, the parable of the ten virgins. And chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. So those are the seven kingdom parables. And together, these parables paint a picture of the kingdom. But the picture they paint is of a kingdom that is yet future. A kingdom that is future. A kingdom associated with the glorious advent of the king and the sudden ordeal of messianic judgment that will bring an end to this age and initiate the age to come. That's what these parables concern. So here we are in verse 33. We're looking this morning at the second of these judgment parables, the second of the three judgment parables directed specifically to the leadership of the nation of Israel. There is application because a people, uh, it's a principle of God's word that a people's leadership are what they deserve. Ultimately, their leadership is either a blessing of God upon them for their obedience, or it is a judgment of God upon them for their disobedience. You get what you deserve. And so it is directed to the leadership, but it is by application to the nation as well. So we're looking here at this parable. It is the second one. In the parable, what clearly comes out is the stubborn wickedness of the heart of the leadership of the nation. Such stubborn wickedness that they would willingly and knowingly reject the Messiah and kill him. Willingly and knowingly. All right, so let's take a look at it. Take a look at it together. I want to do this in three stages with you. So I have three stages of this second confrontation. It's just a way to kind of break it down and work our way through it. So three stages of the second confrontation with the Sadducees, that is the chief priests and elders of the people, revealing their heart of wickedness. Okay, so it begins here in verse 33. It is an agricultural parable. It is the parable sometimes called the parable of the landowner, sometimes it's called the parable of the wicked husbandman, sometimes it's called the parable of the wicked vine growers. It's all the same parable, just different names. The parable, like most of Jesus' parables, draw upon common agricultural images. And that's what this one does. It draws on a common agricultural image. An image that would be very, very familiar, interestingly enough, I think, to, to the people he's talking to. Because it's a parable about a, a, a wealthy landowner. A wealthy landowner who, who has a plot of land and he, he establishes a vineyard there. We'll look at it in a minute. But he goes away and he leaves it under the, under the stewardship of some tenant farmers. I think this is a particularly appropriate uh, parable or story for the people he's talking to, because he's talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people. And if you'll remember back, I told you the elders of the people were the representatives of the aristocratic families of the nation, the wealthy families of the nation. So he speaks to them in terminology they can exactly identify with. Many of them would have been distant landlords, many of them would have owned their own vineyards. And would have had exactly these kinds of circumstances to which they could relate. So it's the parable about a man who owns a large tract of land. Now, beyond the familiarity here of the agricultural aspects, there's one other thing that's, I think, uh, significant enough to point out. And that is that it it echoes a very commonly known judgment passage in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7 tells a parable of a vineyard. I won't turn you again there, but you either know it or you can check it on your own. It is the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7. There God plants a vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. And when it's time for the harvest, the grapes that the, that, the, that the vineyard produces are worthless grapes. And so, ultimately, the owner, that is God of the vineyard, uh, judges it and, and it, is, it is destroyed. That parable is told by Isaiah to speak of the impending Babylonian captivity that will come upon the nation because of their fruitlessness for God. It was very well known among the people. And so when Jesus begins this story, begins this parable here, he is speaking to them at two levels they can identify with. They can identify with the the strict agricultural aspect of the storyline, and they also running underneath it, when they hear about a vineyard being planted and so forth, they would immediately be thinking about Isaiah 5. So it's there. It's all there. One other thing I think it's important before we begin to look at the the parable together is is to to recognize that Jesus is not uh, telling the exact same parable of Isaiah 5. He is lifting the idea, and he's actually telling a new parable. So there's some correspondence, but if I can say it this way, it's a new story. Now, in Jesus' story here we we need to identify the storyline the elements of the story and let's just do that on the front side i don't want you to lose fact of the uh, or touch with the reality of the matter here is that jesus is still confronting the question of authority that is the question before the house it was not resolved in his original pushback with john the baptist and the story of the two sons it is a it is a further and ongoing Conflict between he and the religious leadership. It's a question of authority. The, the Sadducees, that is the chief priests and the elders of the people, are illegitimate to be the spiritual leaders of the nation because they have proven themselves unfaithful. And that's exactly what this parable is going to be about. The illegitimacy of the leadership of the nation of Israel. So let me just give you the correspondence really quick. You probably already know that or figured it out or whatever. But the landowner in this parable that we will shortly look at is uh, God the Father. He is the landowner. The vineyard itself is the kingdom of God. It is not the nation of Israel. It is the kingdom of God. You can see that down in verse 43 where it says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Okay? So the correspondence of the vineyard of the parable is the kingdom of God. The vine growers are the Jewish leadership. The vine growers in the parable are the Jewish leadership. The the landowners, slaves that we'll encounter in the parable are the Old Testament prophets. And the son of the landowner is Jesus himself. Okay? So those those are the elements of correspondence in this particular parable. Okay, so, verse 33. You ready? Listen. That's what it says. Listen. So listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Listen to another parable. Jesus is continuing. This is, this is our textual clue. He is continuing his discussion along the same topic line, the line of authority. So he tells him a story, right? There's a wealthy landowner. He purchases a piece of property. He makes every possible provision for the vineyard that he will plant on this piece of property so that it will be successful. It says that he, uh, he builds a wall around it. The idea here is to protect it it would keep out animals, it would keep out bandits, so he provides for its security. He puts a wine he builds a wine press in it, and the idea here is that it makes the the harvesting of the grapes just very simple and easy. You pick them, you stomp them and you the you know the juice flows off, and so the producing of the wine it's all right there in this operation, and he builds a watchtower it says the idea here is it's like a two story round stone structure, the uh, vine Growers, the vine dressers, they would live on the bottom floor of this, and on the top floor it would be more open with a kind of a balcony where they could stand and oversee the operation. So he has made every single provision to have a very, very productive vineyard. Okay? He's given the farmers here everything they need to be successful. He has not skimped with them at at all, and all they need to do is work the vineyard and pay him his portion, his proceeds from his vineyard at the proper time, at the proper season. And the idea here is that he owns it, he funds it, he provides for it. When the harvest comes, they pay him the lion's share of the harvest, and then the smaller piece of the harvest is their profit. And that's how the operation goes. He takes all the risks, they merely do the work and receive some of the benefit. Verse 34, all looks good in verse 33, verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. Well, wait a minute. This story just took a really drastic turn in the wrong direction. The wrong direction. Now, it takes several years for a vineyard to, to begin to produce a meaningful harvest. So it's, it's likely, you know, within the storyline, there's, there's been some time gone by. He's, he's, a, he's an absentee landlord. Some time has gone by. But, but the time of the harvest is now here. So, so he sends his servants to collect what's rightfully his. But the response they receive is, is shocking. This, this story is intentionally told in this way to, to, to shock you. As a hearer of the story, you're going, are you kidding me? That's unheard of. That's, un, that's unthinkable that such a thing would happen. Rather than pay what they're due, they reject the owner's right over his own vineyard, right? Right? and they abuse and even murder his emissaries. Verse 35. Beat one, killed another, stoned a third. You get the idea here that he sends one after another after another, and they are increasingly more shabbily used and even gay murdered. Now, I'm sure for the, for the audience that hears this story for the very first time, there has got to be a growing sense of anger and indignation and shock and outrage. You can't imagine how people would feel in that first century for that kind of, of disrespect. Disrespect. How can the owner possibly let them get away with this? I mean, when he rejected the first slave that was sent, that should have been enough to, to call in his, his, his army or, or to get the authorities involved and to eject them from the vineyard. But rather than that, he repeatedly, patiently sent one after another, and they are increasingly more shabbily used. You can just feel it. You just sense the tension. But it doesn't end there. Jesus continues to, to, to speak here in, in verse 36. He sends another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Jesus, emphasizing the owner's patience, which merely highlights the wickedness of the of the of the vineyard workers, of, of the of the tenant farmers by saying by, by introducing the, the fact that the owner will now send his son. Verse thirty seven, but afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Listen. They didn't respect my first set of servants. They didn't respect the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. It doesn't say how many. Just multiple sent to them. And they're rejected and, and, and they're killed. And finally, the patience of the owner, rather than be exhausted, says, I know what I will do. I will send my own son. Surely they will respect him. Surely they will, they will pay what is due. Verse 38, but when the vine growers saw the sun, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Now, the idea here is, is when they, when they, they said among themselves, in the middle of verse 38, the idea here is that this is an ongoing discussion back and forth, back and forth discussion. This is, this is the son of the owner. This is the heir. This is the one to whom the vineyard ultimately belongs. Let's kill him. No, yeah, we can't do that. No, let's kill him. We kill him. We can have the whole thing. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, you're right. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. He's not going to do anything about it anyway. He hasn't done anything when we've done this to all the other servants who have come. Maybe he's not even alive himself. Or if he is, he doesn't care or can't do anything. Let's kill the heir. All right, that's what we're going to do. We're going to kill the heir. And seize the vineyard for ourselves. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, verse 39. Now at this point, like a good rabbi, Jesus draws his hearers into the story. He draws them into the story. And what he says to them in verse 40, is you finish the story. You finish the story. Therefore, verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? What will he do? Well, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. They get it. The arrow has found its mark. The, the, the unconscionable wickedness of the vine growers is so clear and apparent that, that the leadership themselves are drawn in. They can finish the story. Now what they say is that he will come and he will bring the most severe judgment down upon those wicked people. Severe judgment. A judgment that it, it is all that they deserve. He will destroy them. And he will give the vineyard. The stewardship of the vineyard. To another group of tenants. Those that will give him his proper share. At the harvest time. Beloved in their own words. They have condemned themselves. In their own words. They have pronounced God's judgment upon themselves. Why? They are the wicked vine growers. They are the ones plotting to murder the owner of the vineyard. In a cold and calculating fashion. Why? So that they might retain their authority over access to the kingdom of God. Wickedness exposed for all of its ugliness, all of its darkness. Stage one. Stage two. Beginning in verse 42. Judgment predicted. Judgment predicted. Jesus said to them, verse 42... Did you never read in the scriptures? (laughs) You know how much that provoked them. They are the the custodians of the word of God. They They are the teachers of the nation of Israel. Implied, of course, is... That if you had really read the scriptures, and if you had really understood what you had read in the scriptures, then you would see rightly. By the way, this expression, did you never read in the scriptures, is, is used only by Jesus. And every time it's used by Jesus, he, he is pointing to the reality that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. So it's a way to, to say to them that the scriptures speak of me. And if you had read them properly, if you had understood them properly, you would know that. He says in John, right, that Moses spoke of me. Abraham saw my day. Did you never read in the scriptures? And then he takes them to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. It speaks about a stone. A stone that was rejected. A stone that was considered by those building the building to be useless, worthless. Worthless. You're picking through the stone pile, and uh, you know, the buildings are made of stone, and you need a lot of stone. And this stone is entirely worthless, it, it has no place to be found in the building at all. We cannot use it in any way, shape, or form. Get rid of it, useless. But ultimately, ultimately, it is the perfect stone. It becomes a foundation stone of the building. That is, it's the stone, when a building was built in those days, they would, they would start with one cornerstone, one foundation stone. It was perfectly square, and it laid out the building. It gave them the proper angle to start the building. This is the foundation stone. The entire building is built upon this stone. It takes its shape from this stone. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, you've got to kind of sense this, right? A stone that the builders think is worth, you know, stone is a stone, right? But this stone's got no value. So it's thrown away, and yet it's, it is, and it becomes the very key, the very central foundation stone of the entire building. Now, Psalm 118, there's some difference of opinion as to what the reference is here in Psalm 118. I just give it to you, you can think about it. One possibility is that it's a reference to Israel herself, and that she had been rejected by her enemies as as uh, you know, worthless, useless and and that God had delivered her and placed her in authority. Other possibility is that it's speaking about David. And there, David was uh, considered worthless, useless. You know, Goliath mocked him. Uh, his own family hadn't, had uh, no consideration of him possibly being anointed king. Even Samuel himself had overlooked him. But God raised him up, right? God made him the leader of the nation. So perhaps it's Israel. Perhaps it's a reference to David. In either case, it doesn't really matter. The important things to see is the reversal of expectations, That's the thing to walk away with here. It is the reversal of expectations. That which was considered worthless is now completely flipped and becomes the key and central element of the building. And it can only be brought about by whom? The Lord. And thus it is marvelous in our eyes. It is beyond anything we could imagine. God has done this. God has done this. Peter, again, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 to 36, he says there, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. The one whom you rejected. The Lord has made him. God has made him both Lord and Christ. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people Producing the fruit of it. The fruit of it. Who are these people? Who are these people? The leadership of the nation. Notice verse 43, it says, I say to you, he is speaking directly there in context to the leadership of the nation. You go back to verse 23, actually, where you'll see the chief priests and elders are introduced. They remain the subject of this ongoing discussion. And so he is talking to them. And they are the people who have rejected Jesus as useless. And they are the ones who are planning to kill him in order to maintain their authority over the kingdom. But it's going to be taken away from them. What's going to be taken away from them? What's going to be taken away from them is their stewardship, their authority over the kingdom. And it's going to be given to another people, another nation, singular, who will bring about the fruit of righteousness. You see the end of the verse. It will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. Producing the fruit of it. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not enter the kingdom of God. Now this verse, verse 43, is a battleground verse. This is a battleground verse. Therefore, on a consequence of the fact that you are the wicked vine growers, on consequence of the fact that you are the builders who have rejected the stone, on consequence of these realities, therefore, I say to you, chief priests and elders of the people, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it and taken away from you as leadership and by extension the people whom you Oversee. So, who are the people to whom it will be given? It's pretty clear who it's going to come from, who's it going to go to. Now, some people believe that the reference here to the removal of the kingdom is the removal of the kingdom promise to the nation of Israel and the transference of that promise to the church. Where Peter himself calls the church in First Peter chapter two and verse nine a holy nation. That is not an ethnic nation, but a, a nation drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and and nation, right? And made one people of God. Now, by this this line of of thinking, it's called supersessionism. It, it basically, what it says is that, that God has permanently set aside the nation of Israel because of their refusal to receive their Messiah, and in fact, their willful crucifixion of him. He has permanently set them aside, and all the promises to the nation of Israel that are, that are laced through the Old Testament have now been, been transferred to this new people, the church. Not physically, but they become spiritual promises of blessing. That's how it goes. The physical promises of a land and a kingdom and so forth become spiritualized and are transferred to the church, the Gentile church. The problem with that line of thinking is that it's not right. That's the problem with it. It is not right. And the reason it's not right is because it plays fast and loose with the Old Testament. The promises of the Old Testament are very clear, they are very precise, and they are woven together with the spiritual promises of the new covenant. David's kingdom is woven together with the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. And they are, they are tied to the, to the physical universe. If the sun refuses to shine, if the moon will no longer you know, shed its light, then the promises Will be undone. And not only ties the promises by the way to David's kingdom. But it also ties it to the priests who will minister in that kingdom. In the exact same context. This is an important subject. This is an important subject. Were the promises of the Davidic kingdom Somehow forfeited by the nation of Israel. Because of their hard-hearted refusal. And were they then stripped out of their physical component. Spiritualized into spiritual blessings. And transferred to this new entity called the church. And Israel then locked out. No. That is not true. To do that would be to do injustice to the entire teaching of the Old Testament. And I would contend with you to do injustice to the teaching of the New Testament as well. Let me just show you one thing. If you go to Acts chapter 1, I leave you just this one thing to to think about. If you're even uh, considering this possibility, let me just leave you with one thing to think about. In Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection of Christ... In verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, it says that Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. At the end of the 40 days, he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. Verse 6, just prior to the ascension, it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says to them, you stupid people, I have spent 40 days teaching you about the kingdom of God, that you as a nation, as an ethnic people group, have lost your kingdom, promised to Abraham, promised to David, promised to the fathers. You have lost it permanently. It has been transferred to this new entity called the church. But he doesn't say that. He says to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Answer to the question is, it's not for you to know when the kingdom will be restored to the nation of Israel. But it is a positive affirmation that it will be restored. It will be restored. And why Simply this, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29, where he is dealing with the issue of the nation of Israel who has been temporarily cut off, he says it cannot be permanent because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Beloved, this is not talking about your spiritual gift. This is talking about the gift of the kingdom. And the calling of those people, it is irrevocable. God cannot go back on his word. And God will not go back on his word. He made a promise, a clear promise to David. He made a clear promise to Abraham. And it will be a land kingdom, a physical earthly kingdom entered through the spiritual door of faith in the resurrected Messiah. Salvation has always been by grace through faith based on the atoning work of Christ, both before the cross and after the cross. But there is a real kingdom. When will that kingdom be established? When Christ returns again. When Christ returns again. When will Christ return again? It is not for you to know the time or the seasons. Right? But I will send the Spirit of God upon you and you will have power and you shall go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Of a kingdom. All right, so what did Jesus mean? What did he mean? If if he wasn't saying here that, that Israel has forfeited her kingdom permanently, what did he mean? Here it is, I think. This is how I've worked it out from my mind. Up to this point, the the leadership of the nation and representing the nation are, are the custodians of the kingdom of God. You do not enter the kingdom of God without going through the gateway of Israel. She were the custodians of the entrance into the kingdom. You could not be rightly related to God outside of the nation of Israel at that time. They were, in the, in the words of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, a kingdom of priests. They were a kingdom of priests. I think we could legitimately say that, that they held the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. But now. But now. By their open rejection of the Messiah and their, their predetermined wicked plan to murder him. They have forfeited their authority. They have forfeited their position. And God is going to transfer that to another people. Another nation who will bring forth the fruit in keeping with kingdom righteousness. And that people beloved is the church. It is the church. I am persuaded of that. Because Israel rejected Christ, God has rejected them. He has, he has set them aside as a nation. His covenant blessings now flow to the world through the church. Through the church. That nation drawn from every tribe and town. It is to the church. First to Peter. Then to all the apostles and to the church at large, through the writings of the apostles, that the keys to the kingdom have been transferred. Stewardship of the kingdom, authority over the kingdom, has been transferred to the church. Through the apostles, we have their writings. We have their writings. Entrance is by faith. Believing into this believing community called the Church of Jesus Christ, which then provides one's ultimate place in the kingdom of Messiah when it is established here on earth at his second coming. That's the way I understand Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Where Paul writes there, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I do not believe that Paul is saying that we have immediately come into the kingdom because the kingdom is not here. What it means is that when he has rescued us, he has transferred us, not presently, but certainly into Messiah's kingdom when it comes. Our citizenship is in the kingdom. If you like, my passport says, citizenship, kingdom of God. But I am traveling right now as a stranger and an alien in this world. But this does not mean, and here's the big difference of opinion here, it does not mean that Israel has been permanently set aside she will again take up her role as custodians of the kingdom when when Christ takes his bride home to be with him when Christ takes his bride home the prophet zechariah zechariah chapter 8 verse 23 he says something really interesting he says thus says the lord of hosts in those days by the way when you read that expression in those days you can be pretty confident that it is talking about the end of time As we understand it. The end of the age. The beginning of the age to come. In those days. In those days. Ten men from all the nations. Will grasp the garment of a Jew. Saying let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Beloved, that hasn't happened yet. The Gentiles of the world. Are not beating a path. To the doorstep of the nation of Israel. Saying you know take us to your leader. Right. Show us your God. But they will. They will someday. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And it will be given to the church. Not permanently. It's talking about its temporary custodianship. The authority over the entrance into that kingdom. Verse 44, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He's continuing to develop here the imagery of the stone. And basically what he says is, they who reject the stone. He's speaking to who? He's speaking to the leadership of the nation and through them to the nation. He who rejects the stone who is the exalted one, right? He is the stone that the the Lord is going to make the cornerstone of of this new building. He who rejects the stone will be broken. And in the end, this stone will shatter them and scatter them like dust in the final judgment. Now, this may be an allusion, possibly, to the destruction of the city and its temple in AD 70. Right? They will be broken, and they were broken. This idea of being scattered like dust, I think, is a a reference back to Daniel chapter 2 and the stone cut without hands that that shatters Nebuchadnezzar's image, right? And turns it to like chaff in the wind. It's blown away. It's, It's speaking of that final messianic judgment prior to the entrance of the age to come. Judgment predicted. Third. Third. And quickly. Understanding assured. The third stage of the controversy, understanding assured. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. They understood it. They have put the pieces together. They realize they, notice parables, plural, they realize they are the second son. Who gives only lip service rather than obedience, they realize they are the vine growers in this parable, who have seized the kingdom and plotted to kill the Son. They are the builders of Psalm 118 who have foolishly rejected God's cornerstone. They also realize that that He has said to them, They will be crushed if they continue to reject and refuse. But they will not repent. They will not repent. Verse 46. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. They understand exactly what he has said to them. And the heart of wickedness says, I don't care what you've said. I do not believe your word. And so they are hunting for a way to arrest him and to kill him. And the only thing that is hindering them at this moment in time is Jesus' popularity with the crowds. Because they consider him to be a prophet. And so for the rest of Tuesday, he will be protected by the crowds that surround him. Because they still consider him to be a prophet. But his air cover, as it were, will evaporate. Beloved, this is the heart of wickedness. It is a darkness, I think, that should take your breath away. It should take your breath away. They are warned of their impending judgment, that those who reject uh, reject the Messiah will be crushed both in this life and in the life to come. And yet, they will have nothing to do with him. They are going to partner with the Pharisees. Notice the Pharisees are standing on the sides here. And they hear it too. Verse 45. It's originally spoken to the chief priests and to the elders of the people. That is the Sadducees. But the Pharisees are standing around. They're hearing the same thing. And shortly they're going to come take their whack at him. They're going to spend the rest of Tuesday. Trying to pry him loose from the crowds. Later. Stephen would say to them in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 and 52, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And they said to Stephen, our hearts are torn asunder when we recognize the depth of our wickedness and guilt. No, the text says they put their fingers in their ears and they screamed and drugged him from the temple and stoned him to death. Beloved, the, the leadership of the nation of Israel Became an implacable enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read the book of Acts. It is not the Romans who are persecuting the believers, it is the Jewish leadership. For the 30 years covered by the book of Romans, the greatest and most fierce opposition to the life changing news of the gospel comes from the very ancient people of God. It's frightening. Absolutely frightening. With the greatest sadness of heart, I would say to you that that the hostility continues to this day. God's ancient people remain in fierce opposition to the truth. What can we do? We can pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We can pray for God to pour forth his mercy and send his son. Because the scriptures are very, very clear, until he sends his son, his ancient people will remain enemies. Now God in His mercy and grace is saving a remnant. He always has. He saved the Apostle Paul. He has continued to save a remnant of the Jewish people down through the years. We are committed to, to church planting among the Jewish people. It is a hard and difficult work. We need to pray. Paul warns us in the book of Romans... In chapter 11, you Gentiles, listen, that the branches of the olive tree, the natural branches, were broken off, and you have been grafted in, but do not be arrogant toward them, for you could be snapped off too. Someday they will be grafted back in. We need to have a heart of compassion for Jewish people. We need to pray that God would open the eyes of his ancient people. When we know or, or work with Jewish people, we need to lovingly speak the gospel to them, praying that God will lift the veil from their eyes. May God save. May God save. Father, thank you for saving us. Oh, Lord, salvation is of the Lord. There are none that are more inclined to believe than others. There are none more far away. And yet in this period of time in world history, according to your mysterious and sovereign will, your ancient people are in full rejection of the truth. As a nation, you have preserved them through the millennium. They have suffered Terribly. At the hands of Gentiles. Including at the hands of those who professed faith in Christ. And yet they remain a people. You continue to protect and preserve them. And you continue to hold before them. The offer that Peter made at Pentecost. That this promises for you and your children. For as many who are afar off. Who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized in his name. Father, we pray for those Jewish friends of ours, Jewish co-workers, Jewish neighbors. Our Father, may you help us to learn to love and to communicate with sensitivity the truth of the gospel, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ, that your arms are open wide to any who would turn. Like the prodigal father you will hitch up your robe and run to greet them if they will but turn to Christ. Father, I pray for the work of the believers in Israel, even now. Those who are there living among the people who know Yeshua and speak of him. O oh Lord, may you bless their tribe, may it increase, may they be effective, sensitive powerful in communicating the grace of God. And our Father, may you help us here to never forget your ancient people, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which ultimately can only come when Messiah returns. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved.